Okay, well we're back here and it is April the 3rd and we're looking again from our lessons from License to Kill. Actually we're in chapter 5, I saw something somewhere written that we were in chapter 6, but we're still in chapter 5. I think I made a reference last week to chapter 6 where we'll talk about the expulsive power of a new affection. That'll be the next time I meet with you, but we're still finishing up the latter part of chapter 5 today. Just a little bit uh, from the last time I was here, which was on March the 20th, we talked about uh, really how Owens had taken his information regarding this uh, chapter 5, which is subtitled Soul Surgery, talking about the Word being a knife, like a surgeon's knife, working in and through us, exposing our sin, giving us direction on how to handle our sin according to the Word of God. And he made reference to Owen's book, uh, The Indwelling Sin of Believers. That's a work that Owen's put together, goodness, 17th century. Uh, He took, really, uh, as his springboard, if you will, Romans chapter 7, verse 21, where Paul talks about, when I would do good, evil is present with me. Pastor just got through going through the latter part of Romans chapter 7, and you will remember those verses from that. He writes a book, an entire book, about indwelling sin. So we went back and we looked at that. We noted that the purpose of such a process was to allow us to make a greater discernment about the presence of sin in our life, any sin whatsoever, to look at it and to bring the Word of God to bear on that aspect of our life. I think I mentioned to you that Hedges, when he had read that, noted that Owen had taken and come out with about nine principles, and he takes those nine principles and condenses those down into just three principles, which which serves as the basic guideline for this particular chapter. We went through principle number one, which was simply just being able to diagnose, diagnose your sin accurately. And Owen had gone so far as to provide five questions that we need to ask to begin to make this determination about exactly where we are in our life regarding any areas of our life that are not totally turned over to Christ. And he says, ask this question first, is this sin a habitual sin? Is it something that you continue to bemoan and continue to deal with in your life? You know, we, we covered, and I'll mention it briefly, you know, Paul covered this again in Romans 7, talking about the good that I would, that I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do. That's what I find myself doing. He finds a law that, you know, when he wants to do it, sin is present. And he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin, that sin principle, the flesh that dwells within him. That is a reality. That's a reality, a sobering reality for us. And yet, in many, many ways, and and I know in my life it's a comforting reality. Comforting. Because I used to, before I understood uh, some of the deeper things of God's Word, as a growing Christian, as a young Christian, I wanted to know why I still leaned toward sin in my life. Because I I knew beyond any shadow of doubt, there was a new part of me, there was a greater desire, an original desire then, to follow God, to be changed. Yeah, okay God, well why, why can I not put this off? Why is this still here? And then to discover that the Word of God talks about that in, in tremendous detail throughout a number 
uh, of books in in the uh, New Testament. Gives us everything we need to know about this battle, this continual battle. And we wind up simply resting in Christ, resting in what God has done. We we we're face to face with the fact that it's all of grace and nothing else. And then the more we begin to rely on that, the more power, you, we, you, if you will, we begin to see in our life that allows us to experience His victory. And I had to get that straight because I kept thinking, well, it's me. It's something that's going to happen in me or to me. I'm going to have the strength. I'm going to be able to do this. And that's the wrong emphasis. It's the total wrong emphasis. It's always focused upon what God, through His power, is doing in our life. And uh, that's critical. So we look at that. Well, I went off on that, didn't I, for about a minute. Number two, he says, do I tend to apply cheap grace to my sin? Assuring myself of forgiveness even when I've not repented or turned from sin. Let's go to the third one. Do I find myself frequently yielding to temptation? Is there a lot of work there to be done? Is my predominant motivation in fighting this sin my fear of the likely consequences if I be found out? An interesting and probing question. What's the, what is my, literally, what is my motivation for wanting to overcome this sin? Is it simply so I'll save face? Or is it simply because it'll eliminate difficulties in my life. Maybe we have that much knowledge about the consequences of sin. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, the ultimate reason is that it brings shame and disgrace upon my Savior, the one who's purchased my salvation for all eternity. That's what it's about. It's about Christ, and that has to be our ultimate motivation. That's what it's about. We can't lose that focus. And then lastly, he says, just ask yourself, has God already begun to chasten me for this sin? And he says, if you can answer, you know, if these are prevalent in your life, if they're realities, then there's some more, as he says, there's some more sin killing to do in your life. Owen said that we need to get a clear and abiding sense upon our mind and conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of sin with which you are troubled. This exercise, he adds, will, will make us feel worse. But in the long run, it makes us feel better. You just got to go there. You got to do the work, if you will. You got to get to the end of yourself. You've got to get to the point where you can call it what it is and bring the Word of God to bear on it and allow the Word of God to deal with it. Why is this such a difficult process? Well, we saw that. And quite simply, and not to oversimplify, but this just speaks to how specific the Word of God addresses this. Go all the way back to Jeremiah 17, 9, where he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Now, who likes sitting on a rock somewhere and having to come to terms with the fact that my heart is desperately wicked? Oh, no, my heart's not, not wicked. It's certainly not desperately wicked. Well, the Word of God says that it is. And we have to keep in mind that certainly that is in comparison, if you will, to what God requires, to a holy and righteous standard which we could never obtain. We can only come into that through the grace of God. I think toward the end, uh, the last time, I did cover the three verses from Psalm that deal with affliction. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? 
where he said, It's good that my heart had been afflicted. David was talking in Psalm 119. He talked about um, the purpose of affliction. Now, God brings that in. We alluded to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, talking about the chastening of the Lord. Uh, and then we're right about where uh, I think I stopped. We uh, would have talked briefly. If I, this is what I'm saying now. I don't know if I covered it or not, but I'll cover it briefly here. That sin wearies the heart of God. You ever think about that? Sin wearies the heart of God from Isaiah 43.25 where he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. And God's desire is for us to put away our sins. He talks in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Thank God He can do that, and yet we still have difficulty sometimes forgetting our sin, don't we? Or as uh, I've counseled people in the past, uh, tremendous obstacle when you get to someone who cannot forgive themselves. You know what I'm talking about? They've come to understand the nature of their sin. They've come to understand the depth of their sin, and it's so overwhelming to them. This is not a unique experience. Uh, what is it? And Ezra talks about my sins have gone up over my head. They have gone up to the heavens. It's a, it's a depiction of just the overwhelming burden of sin once realized. And this is what drives us to a forgiving God. This is what drives us to a God of grace. So we know that it does uh, strike at the very heart of God. Uh, Ephesians 4.30 simply tells us, don't do it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We could cut that several different ways, but we'll come up with the same, the same admonition. Don't do it. Put on the brakes. Don't do that by a matter of discipline, through a matter of commitment. Don't do that, which is going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So it begs the question up front, well, do you have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do you in fact possess the Holy Spirit of God, as every born-again believer does. Now, if you do, there's a relationship there. There's a reality there. He can be experienced. We know Him. He's the presence of Christ in us. The Holy Spirit of God. They're, they're three in one. That's who He is. It would be the same Said, don't go against the Word of God, as we've often said, since He is the Word of God. You don't, you don't do that. Why? Because that is the focus of your life. The standard is no longer your flesh and what the flesh desires in any form, whether it's an attitude or an action or words spoken. That's not our desire anymore. Our desire is for the holiness of Christ to indwell us. Or else why would the Bible say that we can have the very mind of Christ on a matter? That's what he encourages us to do. Thirdly, he says that sin renders us useless and he would refer to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where Christ is talking about, you know, salt, or in other places where John talks about light. You know, we are the salt. We're that which makes the difference. And if the salt, he says, loses its savor, or if it loses its flavor, that is to say, by way of analogy, if it loses its influence, if it loses its impact, then what have we? What have we left? How important is your influence for Christ to you? Because that's what you're 
protecting. That's all we have to offer is our obedience to Him. And as He said, letting people see Christ in us and therefore glorify God the Father. So we can boil it down to that right there. It's living a life. Allow our life to point to Christ. What's the simple and yet devastating obstacle to that end? Sin itself. So that's why we focus on it so much. It's harmful. Lastly, he says it's harmful to others and ourselves. You know the story from 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's great sin didn't just affect David, did it? It affected all Israel. It certainly affected his family. What was the, the word from Nathan? He said, the sword will not depart from your house. You can pray about it. You can do all you want to do. But this is God's judgment. It is not going to depart from your house. What else happened? Child died. We remember that. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. And when God puts you in a circumstance, a situation within your family, within your work, within your service at church, He gives you greater responsibility. He gives you a position of leadership, a position of work and action in the church. There's a greater accountability. The Bible says as much, particularly for those who teach the Word. There's a greater accountability. And we want to take that into consideration, and rightly so, because God wants His church to be pure. Continuing in sin, now we're into today's lessons, will cause us to doubt our salvation. And really, it also has the potential of, quite frankly, uh, revealing an unregenerate heart. And this is something that has to be deciphered within the individual based upon the truth of God's Word. Well, where would we go to begin looking at that as we make this evaluation? 1 John 3, 6 says that no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. It talks about... Um, the Word just left me. Um, I'll get it in a minute. But it talks about actually a habitual process or something that's constant. Not in terms of constant temptation, but of constant choice. In other words, this is what we're about. We have not changed. This is still the direction we're going. Don't confuse it with the fact that as a new believer or as even as an old believer that we still wrestle with sin like we talked about from Romans 7. We're not talking about that. You know, that's a person who's fighting against sin. That's a person who's trusting God. That's a person who runs to God in the time of failure. This kind of person, practicing is the word I was looking for, who's practicing sin, and you see that translated that way in in many of the Bible translations. The ones who's doing that, they're, they're just admitting, this is still my lifestyle. There may be something coming out of my mouth that sounds religious, that sounds churchy. It might even be Scripture, right? Could be. But what is the desire of my heart? Only God can look at that and know for sure. Only He can do that. I love what I read when I was looking at this a little deeper from MacArthur Commentary. He says it speaks of the defiance and rebellion of a fallen heart. Of a fallen heart. And I think the ultimate question is, when we're struggling with sin and difficulty in our life, quite frankly, do you run to God or do you run from God? You want to increase that distance between you and Him as, as though you could. What a lie, right? Right out of hell. 
You want to try and increase that distance to make you feel a little better, bring you out from under the the guilt for a while? Well, that's evidence of a rebellious heart, a heart that's defiant toward God. But one who comes to God, like the guy who went up with the with the family, what is it, uh, Luke 18, and he's beating on his chest and he's saying simply, and I love this, he's just saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. God be merciful to me a sinner. And Christ Himself from the Word of God says, that is the man who went down to his house justified. And we see here that only God can look upon the heart. Only He can know for sure, where a person's coming from. So what's our, what's our uh, command? What are we to do as, as teachers and as those who just witness to others? We're to, we're to take them to the Word of God and show them what the Word of God says and have them evaluate their life, their desires, their attitude against the Word of God and let the Word of God do its surgical work as we're talking about from this chapter let their accountability be to God. We can say to them, I can tell you this, I told a young man not long ago, buddy, I don't know if you're a Christian or not. I don't know. You say you've been baptized and you have and you say this and that, but all I can tell you is that your life, there's more evidence to indicate that you're not than that you are. Now that's what you need to deal with. And whether you are or not, you need the Word of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God to make that impression on you. I can't do it. Pastor can't do it, but the Word of God can do it. And you'll come away with one of two things. Well, that third one is just to act like nothing's happening to go on, but that in itself is a denial. But you'll deny or you'll go on. You'll get peace, you'll get conviction, and then you'll get forgiveness. Then you'll get restoration. Then you can move on. Then you can be, as it says, a a healed helper. You can go on and help others. But you need to answer that question. You need to answer that question first. So he takes us back briefly before we get into some of this this other stuff. He tells us again from Romans 6.14, don't let sin have dominion over you. Don't let it reign over you. There's an assumption there. We'd have to understand that. And then, of course, from 1 Corinthians 10.13, and I'm just hitting you with these. No temptation has taken you or overtaken you except such as is common to man or that which is human, regularly human for everyone. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Hmm. I can remember discovering that verse in its depth for the first time. And asking myself, now wait a minute, did I miss something during this temptation? Was there a window? Was there a a parachute? Was there some way I could have, have avoided yielding to this temptation? Where was it? The Bible assured me that it was there. And I began to look, you know, and I began to examine my own heart. What a process. It almost makes me want to break out and sweat up here. That's the nature of it, isn't it? And we discover that, you know, it's just as James says, you know, first off, God doesn't tempt anybody. He doesn't do that. But as that continues on, that's in chapter 1 beginning with verse 13, as it continues on in James there, he tells us exactly how it happens. He talks about sin and what it brings forth. And it comes to fruition because of what remains in us. This is true for the believer and the unbeliever. 
It's the lust, it's the desire, it's the earthly, worldly, sinful desire that's still in us. When it's conceived, when it comes to fruition, it brings forth death. Now, it won't, you know, for the, for the true believer, it's not going to bring forth eternal death, but I'll tell you what it will do. It'll kill some relationships. It'll kill some opportunities in your life. It'll certainly kill a good deal of joy in your life, in your Christian life. It will do that. And sometimes these things, you know, depend on the nature of it and the severity of it, they're, they don't, that you can't get them back. The damage is done, so to speak. Not talking about ultimate forgiveness. Not talking about eternal forgiveness. We're talking about the wages of sin being death. That's what we're talking about. So once we're aware of that, does that not motivate us? Does that not drive us to the Word of God? First, because we're convinced it's reality in our life. And then secondly, we're convinced that God and God alone has the answer. God and God alone, through His Word has the answer for us. So that takes us up to point number two where he talks about literally cultivating a right view of God and a right view of self. Now these are broad topics, but I like them. A right view of God and a right view of self. Proverbs 9.10 talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. And he says... Uh, and knowledge of the Holy One, he says, is insight. It's insight. You could go to Proverbs 1.7 or Psalms 42.1 and read something similar. And it's about bringing ourselves before God day in and day out. In our time with Pastor Thursday morning during our meeting time, we, we, we were talking about having this continual attitude of prayer and what that meant. And there were some questions from our group about that. And we began reflecting upon that. How do we go about our day with this, this constant attitude, bringing ourselves uh, under the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God in every situation in our life? Can we literally do that? And you know, through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, we can do that. Why? Because we're, we're new. We've been created anew. We have a potential now within us that we did not have before. That's why Paul says that, you know, every, first off, every Christian does have the Holy Spirit, which you know, of course. Uh, but he says that that's why the Word of God is foolishness to a person who doesn't have that. The Spirit of God opens up that insight, makes it possible. That's not to say it's not, a, it's not mystical or magical. You know, we still have to study, don't we, to show ourselves approved. But now we can get through that. We have the tools that are necessary, whereas before we were dead and trespasses and sins. But now we have. That's why we don't have an excuse. We can latch on to the wisdom and knowledge of God. Is it a lifelong process? Yes. It most certainly is. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's true insight. It's genuine. It won't take you down a wrong path. It will be time well spent. Makes a difference. Makes the difference. And then, of course, it's hard hard not and I threw the, it's hard not to throw in Romans eleven thirty three here, where Paul, after his great discourses there in chapters you know seven, eight, nine, and ten, you know he's like it's just like he leans back, and and with a, a great breath, I don't know, he says, "Oh, the depth 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There we see it again. How unsearchable, he says, are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Just to sit back and, and think about, you know, I really don't, I'm sitting here trying to get to the end of things, and rightly so. We want to know. God wants us to know certain things. But ultimately, what do you say? I don't know. I'm not going to know. I'm not going to get to the end of it. And I don't have to know. I can trust in God. I can believe His Word. And thank God it's a lifelong process. We never, ever, nor could we exhaust our living God. We can't do it. He speaks of judgments, which is God's purposes, as it says. God's decrees. He's left His Word for us. And it speaks of His ways, which is just His methods. He does it differently, does it not? God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? And to see His hand working in conjunction with who He is is a marvelous faith-building event in our life. You won't get there apart from obedience. You won't get there apart from determining to yield yourself to God and allow Him to do His work in and through you. John Calvin said, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinizing Himself. It was understood back then from the Word of God. This is a necessary process. This is what our life is about. Making ourselves totally subject to Him each and every day. Beginning our day, ending our day in such a fashion. So we'll finish this and move on to uh, really the attributes of God. We'll finish this by looking again at 2 Corinthians 13.5 where he tells us plainly, this is a good ending, Do, uh, what's he say? Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, not, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? And understand the context here Paul's talking about is salvation. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. And to go a little deeper, Paul is making these remarks against the backdrop of these people who've come in and started accusing him and and dragging out all these accusations against Paul, saying that, well, Paul, all you're about is money. Uh, All you're about is notoriety. And uh, I understand there's there's some reference. uh, Paul, all you're you're about is is women. That's all you're about. And they were accusing him and, and questioning his apostleship. And actually, I understand when he says this, he, in, in the original language, it turns it around and he's saying, you need to examine yourselves. It puts the you up front. You're the one who needs to do this. He's throwing it back at his accusers. And it's talking about looking at the, at the, at the guidelines and principles of God's Word. He's telling them, you're judging me. You're off base in what you're doing. You're doing it selfishly. You're doing it for your own motivation. So the application for us is the same. If we're the ones, as I said earlier, sitting on that rock and doing the examination, what is our motivation? Do we want to please God? Are we trying to justify something in our life? David experienced this. He said, examine me, try me, Psalm 26, 2, Psalm 17, 3. He says, Lord, you have tried my heart. You have tested me. And I've come forth. 
And he didn't sound like he was any worse off for the process. Don't you like to be clean before God? When God brings something in your life that challenges your faith, you know, it's really difficult. Or uh, He brings a task in your life. He puts an opportunity before you that challenges you. Is your first inclination to get clean first? Because you know, I can't, I can't do this without God. And, and if, if I'm harboring sin in any way, the Bible tells me that it separates me from God. It separates me from His best for me. I can't hear His voice clearly. It's all or nothing. How many times does the Word of God say you come with a whole heart? A whole heart. Psalm 119 says it about six times. Jeremiah talks about it. It's elsewhere in the Psalms. God wants our whole heart. No deals. No deals. You don't bring anything to the table. You're totally dependent upon Him. What does that have to do with sin in my life? Well, we get to thinking that we can do it by ourselves. This is where sin creeps in. Because we're totally ineffective in that. We do not have what it takes. And I'm going to write stop right there. Not the lesson. I've got a few more minutes. But we are going to move on into this, this next area here where it talks about focusing upon God and drawing strength from Him. Okay, so why would we focus, as he says, as, uh, as Owen says and Hedges says, why would we stop to focus upon the attributes of God in order to gain strength? Why would we do that? This is his first positive effort that pushes us forward in discovering what we have from God to build us up and allow us to deal with this. And I thought, you know, this is kind of broad. But then I began thinking, you know, we last year in our community group, we completed a study, a Steve Lawson study on the attributes of God. And I taught that study, uh, me and Tim Ryan. And um, you know what? That was quite an experience for me because I even told the group, I said, you know, in my whole Christian life, I don't think I have ever stopped to do an intensive study on the attributes of God. And, you know, Pink does the study and there's some other studies out there. And what a wonderful, life-changing study that was, focusing upon our heavenly Father. You know, I'd have to admit, I'll, I'll admit, I, I think my, my, my primary focus was upon the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. And I began to look at this much deeper as a result of the study and how wonderful it is when we realize, quite frankly, that our God is big and He is in control. And you say, well, we know that, you know, God's sovereign. As a good old Arminian Southern Baptist many years ago, I'd tell you God was sovereign. Oh, He's sovereign. Except in salvation, He's not sovereign in that. You know, I'd say that. No. <laughs> or, or, or this or this or that. or the, you, know the, you know the drill. You know the story. But to begin to see that the hand of God and the promises that we have in our life, which are associated not with our abilities, but who God is, oh, it builds us up. It gives us strength. We don't know because we know that the promises of God that we read in His Word are sure, whether we understand them or not. So he asked the question, why focus on the attributes of God? How will this help us in our fight to be closer to God, to identify sin in our lives? And quite simply, he says that seeing God as He really is will make us loathe our sin. This is true. 
The closer we get to Him, remember I said earlier we'll feel worse, but it'll be a better experience for us. The closer we get to Him, we begin to see the dirt and the grime. Isaiah in chapter 6 certainly had that experience, did he not? Oh God, I'm a man of unclean lips. i tell you what I like to go to. I like to go to John in the Revelation. Understanding that John had this this relationship with Christ. You know, they, they identified him as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay? Like he didn't love the others, you know? But there was, seems to be a different relationship with Jesus and John there. He was the one who, as it says, he leaned upon Jesus' breast, you know, and so on and so forth at the, the, the Last Supper there. But during the time of the Revelation, what does he do when he's confronted? He's confronted with the very presence of Almighty God. Now this is, in his humanity, this is John, who arguably was so close to the risen Christ. What does he do? You would think he has his theology right, okay? That he would know exactly what to do. So what does he do when the angels are there, presence, and and, you know, it's just angels between him and God. What does he do? He falls down and he starts worshiping the angels. And he doesn't do it once, he does it twice. And they have to tell him, get up, you see him, get up. He's in the room, you know, get up. And they quote the scripture to him. You know, but there it is. And we think we know how to worship. And I would submit to I'm destitute. I really am. Awesome God. I want to tell the young people of today look, folks, is not awesome. God and God alone is awesome. He's awesome. He's beyond words. He's beyond finding out. And our first attribute says that He is eternal. Psalm 92 says, or 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I tell you, on a given day for me, enough said. I'll go with that. With that. And He will not fail. He is eternity. And we talk about what we call the ascetia of God or the fact that He is self-sufficient. I love it. Paul, and you know the verses from <coughs> Acts 17 where he's talking there in Athens to these superstitious folks. Paul looking around. You can tell that's what he's doing. He's wanting to get started with these Athenians. What's he going to say first? He finds the statue to the unknown God. And, you know, he says, this is the one I come to talk to you about. But he begins by saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul didn't, even with these unbelieving things, he didn't start in about the resurrection of Christ and all that. They're not going to get that. He knew that. But he knew that they understood creation that they could look and see the glory of God. That's why he wrote it in, in Romans, in the first chapter there. He understood that the heavens, as we'll read, declare the glory of God. He got their attention about the God that he was talking about. The self-sufficient God who needs no one, who is creator of all. Most of the time when we think about the attributes of God, we think about the three omnis, don't we? He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He has all power. He's everywhere. He knows everything. And we leave it at that. He's so much more. 
Psalm 147.5 says that great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 147.5. And again, it's just good sometimes to get to a point where we know we can't go any further. He's understanding. As Paul said, who can understand? His ways are past finding out. So therefore, what I'm dealing with What I'm dealing with and what I need in my life is wholly supplied by Him. I can trust Him even though I don't see the way clearly right now. How do we know that? Because His Word says we can trust Him. God's going to take you as a believer to a place I trust where we went over this briefly a few weeks ago where you're not going to have anything but Him. Just His Word. Just His promises. You won't be able to identify any other resources. There won't be any other securities. I think He has to take us there to show us. He knows. But to test us, to put us there that we might know and understand His faithfulness, not just from the written page, not just from our commitment, which is sufficient, which is enough, but we'll know it from experience. That's why Paul could cry out, like we read in Philippians 3.10, that his desire was simply to know Him. To know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering. That's experiential. That's what that is. He wants that for us. And then, of course, He is sovereign. Psalm 103.19 The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. That's who He is. And I tell you, I marked a verse, uh, I remembered that, when we were over here in our study with Brother David Kemp, who's in Daniel, he took us to Daniel chapter 4 one day, beginning in verse 34b. And this is what Daniel says along this line, speaking of God and His praise. says, For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I said when we began that he's large and in charge, and that's what Daniel was saying. He just didn't say it like we would say it today. What, a, what an awesome, awesome reality. When we think about this God we serve and what he's done for us, his promises to us, And He never fails, ever fails. Lastly, and what I often say is, to me is His his most predominant predominant characteristic. Of course, I understand that He's all of these things at once to the same degree. But when I think of God, I think of Him being holy. He's holy. Because I know it's His holiness that first got my attention from a personal standpoint. That being that because He was holy and I had come into contact with my sin, I knew I couldn't approach Him. I couldn't. I knew that without knowing a whole lot about the Bible, that was, the, that was what was falling upon me you know, at a time when I was looking to Him to relieve my sin burden. It was the very fact that God was holy and I was not and I needed Him. What am I going to do? 
What am I going to do? And that's where every person has to go. And that's, that's where the process of salvation begins. It's, it's in realizing our need and realizing who God is. Being convinced He's the only one who can provide it. God does that work. And how does He fill the gap? How does He do that? Through the all-sufficient, substitutionary, sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace. That's what we preach and teach. It all comes down to that very thing. The heavens declare the glory of God and His handiwork. I quoted that earlier. God, Hebrews tells us, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made worlds. I believe that. I simply believe that. And His Word continues to testify of that in my heart. I'm so thankful for that. Hodges says that a a heart humbled by God's terrible majesty can begin its recovery and grow strong. Sin can't thrive in a humbled heart. And that's Scripture, is it not? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise from Psalm 51, 17. That's what's required. You know, in today's world, that's the battle right there. We live in a haughty, arrogant, self-seeking, materialistic world. That's where we live. And it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. We're, we want to bring people out of that. We want to help them see their need. We want, we want to bring them before this holy and righteous God and let Him do the work of conviction in their heart. We can't do that. We can't do it. But God will do that. Owen suggests five things that we can do. Give me five minutes. A minute for each. Five things that we can do. So part three says that we're not to presume upon peace, but wait for the Lord. In other words, that's another way of saying, make, make sure that what you're responding to, you're responding based upon the Word of God, based upon the leadership of God. And I don't know if he saw it then, like we often see it today, but you know, that's where the battle is fought and won. That's where a lot of times we get a lot of, we get a lot of deception in our life. We get a lot of phonies, okay? Uh, we get, uh, the devil tries, as he says, to give us a counterfeit. And anything that falls short of a true and valid repentance is no good. And it leaves us in a state of deception. You understand that that's the devil's primary tool is to deceive us. To deceive us. So he says this. He says, does your peace inspire anything less than hatred for sins? Does the peace that you claim to have and experience, does it inspire anything less than hatred for sin? Proverbs 8.13a says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The first thing we understand about God when we come into relationship with Him is that He hates evil. He does. And that gets passed on to us. Then He says, Is your peace rooted in logic alone, thus failing to sweeten your heart with rest and contentment in Christ? 
can't be in, in just logic alone. In other words, has it gotten down to the root within you? Has it led to conviction? We could say it this way. It's not enough just to know the Word of God. We know that from the Word of God, don't we? Yeah, there's people who know the Word of God. The Apostle Paul knew the Word of God. If he was uh, the up-and-coming guy like the Scriptures say he was, he could probably quote the book of Isaiah to you. That was a common thing. But knowing it off the page, knowing the letter, and, and that letter, that Word of God being in your heart through the, the miraculous work of, of God's saving grace is two different things. <coughs> there are many people who would affirm the Word of God or the morality of God's Word. So he says, look at that and look at it closely. Psalm 73.25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. So what is your desire? What is your desire? Thirdly, he would say, is your peace superficial, dealing only with the fruits or the sinful behaviors rather than the roots, or which are, of course, the sinful motives? Psalm 38.8 in support of this says, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. This helps us. Was this just something my decision for Christ? Was just this something that I like the word acquiesce to? That I just kind of gave myself over to? Yeah, I read that. That sounds good. I'll go that direction. Was that what it was? That what it was? Or was it a heartfelt, heart-searching, you know, soul-exposing response to the power of the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. You must have those two. Those two produce two other things. They, were, they produce faith and they produce always, without exception, repentance. Faith and repentance are produced by the right response to God's Word and God's Spirit. Does your peace Focus only on one sin while leaving the other untouched. David knew better than that. In Psalm 51.2, he said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. All of my sin. And he acknowledged also there that all of his sin was against God. Against you and you alone. He didn't mean he hadn't sinned against anybody else. He certainly sinned against Bathsheba, didn't he? He sinned against his own body. The Bible says we can do that. But all sin is against God first and foremost. It's about our relationship to Him. And then lastly, and we're done, does your peace lead to greater humility before God? This is a telltale sign in the life of professed believers that we come into contact with. You know, humility before God takes away this attitude about, look what God's doing for me. Look what God gave me. You know, look, look, look at this, look at that in my life. God made me throw a better fastball. You know, God improved, you know, my business or whatever. It's not about that. Praise God for His blessings along that line. But it's about Him. It's about the person of Christ. Does your peace lead to greater humility before God? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, James tells us, and He will lift you up. He'll do it. He'll do it according to His time frame. He'll do it in conjunction with that which brings honor and glory to Him. Not you. Not me.
but to Him. Well, we're finished. We're finished. And from this chapter, we talked about the surgical work of God's Word. And I hope you would agree that's exactly what it does. It exposes and has the power to eliminate the sin in our life. He asks us to diagnose our sin accurately, to cultivate a right view of God in yourself, and to evaluate your level of peace. Know where you stand with God. Draw your strength from who He is. And we're going to, as we continue, and in the days ahead, I'll, I'll be with you some more. We'll look at that more specifically. What tools has He given us? What can we rest on in Christ? Let's pray.